This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome on this beautiful August Sunday. Thank you for tuning in to Your Radio Doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Joining us today is Dr. Megan Healy from Temple University Hospital to talk about emergency medicine. Emergency medicine. Where would we be without the emergency departments in our city of Philadelphia and across the country? Many people don't realize that it's a relatively new specialty. In the late 1960s, early 1970s, hospitals were becoming more modernized with advanced technology. More people began to rely on hospital emergency rooms for care. The second hospital in the country to start a residency program was right here in Philadelphia at the Medical College of Pennsylvania. Philadelphia is so rich in medical history. Our guest today is actually a graduate of Drexel University College of Medicine, which includes two great icons of medical school training, the Medical College of Pennsylvania and Hahnemann Medical College. We are so fortunate to welcome our guest, Dr. Megan Healy. Dr. Healy is an Associate Professor of Clinical Emergency Medicine at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University, also the Assistant Program Director of their Emergency Medicine Residency at Temple. She's also a member of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine and the Council of Residency Directors in Emergency Medicine. Welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for your sharing your time and wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Megan, we used to call it, um, back when I was a wee girl, the emergency room, and now we call it the emergency department. I think it explains itself because it's become such um, a very important part of every hospital. Sure. Emergency departments moved from, in the past, being under departments of surgery, sometimes under departments of medicine. But when we realized that we needed a specially trained workforce to deal with emergencies and to, to sort out exactly what's going on with patients and what they need, we developed our own specialty, our own specific training programs, and, and that's how emergency departments came to, to be came to fruition, and you said it perfectly, it is a workforce because Temple, the main hospital uh, emergency department at Temple sees, what, almost 100,000 patients a year? 
Exactly. Uh, right in that 90 to 100,000 patients a year mix of all ages, um, primarily adult patients, but we see pediatric patients when they come through our doors as well. Oh, I'm sure. So when a patient calls their doctor after hours or on a weekend with new chest pain or severe belly pain and they get the advice, go directly to the emergency department, it's not uncommon for a patient to say, but I don't want to wait all those hours to be seen. What would you tell them? And I guess the second question aligned with that is, when does a patient know whether to go with the convenience of an urgent care uh, center or go directly to the emergency department? I think those are the two key questions to start. Sure. Well, the first thing we'll say is you never want to take a chance with your health. Um, and although the weights can be, can be challenging, they're challenging for us too, and, and we find them frustrating. We want to be able to see everyone as quickly as possible, but we also want to do it in the safest way possible and to make sure each individual patient gets that complete evaluation, gets our fullest attention um, when we are with them in the rooms. So emergency medicine is based on the concept of triage, which is finding the sickest patients who have the most life-threatening illnesses and taking care of them first. And that's why it can be frustrating to sit in a waiting room and you see someone go back who's been there for a shorter period of time than you. Uh, we always say, you don't want to be that person that's being brought back very quickly. That means something is, is really seriously wrong. So those are the sort of things I, I like for patients and families to try to keep in mind and to know when, when you're back in the treatment spaces, our nurses, our doctors, our techs, you will have our full attention um, and you'll, you'll get the care that you need. Sure. And then for that second part of the question, urgent care versus the emergency department, the two examples you gave were great. When there's sudden severe symptoms, no question you should go to the emergency department. Sudden severe pain, um, shortness of breath, dizziness, something that comes on out of the blue and is impeding you from being able to, to do your normal activities. That's a sign that could be very serious and you likely need the emergency department. I like to think of urgent care as being the place where you would go with a complaint that you otherwise would feel comfortable going to see your doctor for in the office, but maybe it's outside of normal hours, it's the weekend. A more straightforward, uh, simple kind of complaint that could usually be taken care of in an office setting because urgent cares do have some equipment right on site like x-rays and the ability to do some simple tests like urine tests, but they don't have access to some of the more advanced imaging like CAT scans that we have in the emergency department, things like an array of blood tests that you might need. Plus I would think if somebody has chest pain and they think, wow, urgent care is around the corner, when you get there and they can't give you a clot buster or some new, or you know, really treat you to the max with some new technology, they're gonna to have to take the time to transfer you to the hospital. So uh, it's better than not going at all because a lot of times people think they have indigestion or something. And the, I think the other thing that we had a nice long conversation the other day, and I appreciate that. Um, we talked about patients who are in the waiting room. Life is dynamic. So if you've been with feeling nausea or something, and then you start to get sick, if your situation or your symptoms start to escalate, you have to go to the desk and say, I'm worse. Yes? Not Definitely. be shy. If mm -hmm. something changes, if you're feeling worse, if your symptoms are accelerating, please notify someone so you can be reassessed. 
Emergency medicine is very dynamic. We're always getting new data coming in, new vital signs, uh, a new test that you might need. So you want to keep the, the staff abreast of those things as they happen. Exactly. And emergency departments are now employing the help of physician assistants and nurse practitioners in patient care much more often. What kind of role do they play in the, that workforce you talk about, the team? Sure. Well, we are the ultimate team sport. And the physician assistants and nurse practitioners who work in emergency departments are required to have some additional training about our unique setting and the skills that you need to practice in that setting. They always also have a physician that's overseeing them and available for consultation. And the PAs and nurse practitioners that I work with in the emergency department are very good at knowing when to get additional help, talk to the physician that's supervising them. But if you have concerns, you can also always ask for that physician to get involved in your care. Sure. We're going to talk about a lot of helpful information today. We have about 30 seconds left. What would you say are the most common causes that bring patients to your emergency department? Sure. Chest pain, belly pain, shortness of breath, um, falls, motor vehicle accidents and other types of trauma, now COVID, things that are also potentially life-threatening like allergic reactions um, are some of the big categories that we see. Headaches as well. <laughs> and we have two new grandchildren in the family and I think about premature labor, strokes, all kinds of things that you have to really be that jack of all trades and, and not superficially. You have to know it in depth because minutes make such a difference. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Megan Healy from Temple University Emergency Department. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Mary Ann Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. Our guest today, Dr. Megan Healy from the emergency department at Temple University Hospital. Megan, we talked about the more common reasons why people come to the emergency department chest pain, belly pain, shortness of breath. Let's start with chest pain because that's always frightening for people. Tell us what you usually tell patients. Sure. So chest pain is a complaint that really needs to be worked up in an emergency department, especially for folks who have other medical problems, um, who are older. The thing that's tricky about heart problems is it's not always just chest pain. People can have what we call atypical symptoms that can be their body signaling that they're having a heart attack. So things like getting very out of breath when walking a short distance or getting very dizzy, especially when you're exerting yourself. Um, so when you're doing some exercise and if it's an activity that wouldn't normally have been a problem for you and suddenly it is, uh, that's concerning. So symptoms that fall into that kind of category, chest pain, is tricky, so you never want to make any assumptions about why you're having symptoms that you're feeling in the, the chest or upper abdominal area. A lot of folks may attribute it to something like an ulcer or indigestion. Say, so just be very careful about that, especially if you have other medical problems like high blood pressure, diabetes, if you have known heart issues, because mm -hmm. cardiac symptoms can be sneaky that way. And you make a very good point because if you are having a heart attack, it means that that muscle in the middle of your chest, the pump that sends blood out to every place else in your body, like your head, your belly, your arms and legs, if you feel dizzy, it could be because 
you have less blood reaching your head because your heart is tired. It's having a heart attack. It's not working at full speed. And so you might feel dizzy. You might be having an abnormal heart rhythm and not pumping effectively. You might have nausea or vomiting, right? You could have belly pain because if the blood isn't flowing to your stomach and intestines, it feels like you have a migraine in your belly. Sometimes we call it that, right? Sure. Or sweating. Mm-hmm. Sweating, Maybe yeah. You're... That always makes mm-hmm. me think of um, a very famous doctor in our field who is one of the ones who trained me, who's now my department chair, uh, Dr. Robert McNamara, uh, is famous for saying, if the patient is sweating, then you should be sweating. So that we as, as the doctors, as the care team, should be worried if we see a patient who's having profuse sweating um, that's a sign that there could be something serious happening. Certainly if you were out in the heat or running around, um, not in that scenario, but if you have chest pain with sweating, that's a red flag in our book. That's, that's saying you're on a treadmill that you shouldn't be on. And I have right. to say hats off to Dr. McNamara, a fellow St. Joe Hawk. Hi, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are other things too. You can have pain in your chest that's because you have pneumonia and the pleura or the sac that Hold your lungs is inflamed and that can hurt. Maybe you have, um, as a patient with sickle cell anemia, and when they go into sickle cell crisis, those poor patients can have pain in any part of their body. Cocaine, right? Cocaine use can lead to an actual heart attack or chest pain. And there's a, a form of acute toxicity from cocaine that um, is called cracked lungs. So, so many, so many issues can lead to chest pain. And again, a patient is not going to get the proper care at an urgent care center might be a good first stop, but if they need to be admitted or have their heart rhythm observed for 24 hours, please think, get yourself right to the ER. I would guess you'd also ask patients to not say, gee, it's quicker if I put my loved one in the car and drive, please call an ambulance because those trained professionals can be treating your loved one or friend or even a stranger on the street during the ride. You can't drive and do CPR at the same time, right? Sure. If it's something sudden, severe, you may, especially if you have a long, longer distance to travel, you could be putting yourself in a really precarious situation if someone's getting worse in your vehicle. So keep that in mind for sure. Yeah, don't take that chance. As a GI doc, I used to say to my medical students, I could be called to the emergency room and have 10 people in 10 different rooms with belly pain. And I have to figure out whether it's a hot gallbladder an upset appendix, mm-hmm. uh, an obstructed valve from colon cancer, or just an everyday virus. And, and tell us about that, how you go about your, your list of issues when you approach somebody with belly pain. Sure, I think abdominal pain is one of my, my favorite um, chief concerns that a, a patient will bring into the emergency department because there's so many things that it could potentially be geography really is our first starting point. So what's the location Mm -hmm. of the pain? There's so many essential structures happening and doing their jobs in, in the abdomen. So we think about where, where is that pain? Did it start in one place and migrate to another, another location in the abdomen? We think of belly pain mainly separating folks that may have a potentially surgical cause of their abdominal pain versus folks who have a a medical cause of their abdominal pain. So things like appendicitis or a gallbladder infection are things where there may need to be an intervention uh, much sooner that you may need our surgical colleagues involved. So definitely thinking about what area of the abdomen, 
the time course, how it developed, what other symptoms are going on along with it, help us to, to determine what you need. Because that's our whole job in the emergency department to figure out what level of care do you need? Do you need to come into the hospital or is this something that could get further testing done as an outpatient? Is this something that needs a surgical specialist versus a medical doctor versus an OBGYN? Um, so for our women patients with abdominal pain, there's lots of GYN issues that could cause their pain. So helping to, to figure that out and put the pieces of the puzzle together to get you to the right care, that I think is, is the fun part of our job, figuring that all sure. out. Sure, and I guess, especially with young women of childbearing age, pain can be pretty nasty with an ovarian cyst or endometriosis, not, or even pelvic inflammatory disease, but it's not as life-threatening as an ectopic pregnancy. So patients, try your best to remember all the details. Are you taking any medications that could put you at risk? Are you, um, are you possibly pregnant? And don't be afraid to tell the truth that, you know, you don't want to keep that secret because um, you don't want to lose a baby and uh, you don't want any medications. But that's why you always test for pregnancy on the spot as well. And, and then kidney stones is another sneaky guy. The pain can start up in your back and then travel around to your belly. Appendicitis. We always say right lower corner or right, right lower quadrant, but it can start around your navel. So don't guess. Come and visit Dr. Healy at the emergency department. Shortness of breath, that's another big one that you see often. Tell us about that if you would. Sure. So the most common reasons for shortness of breath that we see would be things like COPD or asthma. Also patients that have heart failure, so it's actually a cardiac cause of their, of their shortness of breath, their difficulty breathing, because it leads to, to fluid um, in their lungs that impairs their ability to be able to breathe. But other things like, like blood clots can cause shortness of breath. Mm. Um, so those are some of the common ones we see. Sure, and then allergic reactions. As a mother of children with allergies, takes my own breath away and uh, you want patients to come to the emergency department immediately. And your rule of thumb, Megan, is if you have two symptoms, if you tell us about that. Sure. So when to use your EpiPen, it's when two things are present, a rash plus shortness of breath, rash plus vomiting or diarrhea, um, tightness in your throat plus vomiting or diarrhea, um, chest tightness plus a rash. Any combination of two symptoms is the sign that this is a more serious, life-threatening type of allergic reaction and you should use your EpiPen. Sure, because vomiting and diarrhea, people scratch their heads and say, what does that mean? It means you have hives in the lining of your stomach and bowel that are causing those symptoms, right? And the other big thing we remind always, always, use your EpiPen while you're waiting to come to the emergency department, especially if you're Let's say you're stuck in traffic and you've eaten a snack and have a reaction or you're out in a canoe someplace. Always two things. Go ahead, use the EpiPen so your heart races a little bit and always carry that double EpiPen because if the first pen malfunctions, you have a backup. Plus, as we'll talk about other issues, you can have a rebound. You might stay the reaction and then if you have trouble getting to ED uh, pretty quickly, you have a second pen to, to take another shot. I think the same thing um, when we talk about belly pain, rewind the tape a sec. In medical school, the one thing we all learn is Hippocratic facies. It's all in the person's face. Listen to the patient when they're talking to us, right? Tell us about that a little bit. Sure, it's, it's so important that we 
we hear from you and that you really are able to tell us kind of the story of your symptoms because so many aspects, little details that you might not think are significant um, can really help us narrow down what is going on. Um, and we're able to make those connections best when you kind of share the open-ended story and, and those details. And we'll sometimes help to narrow it by asking more specific questions. But it's so important um, to hear to hear what you experienced and especially if you've had symptoms like this in the past, that's another really important aspect to bring to your doctor's attention. Mm -hmm. and, if, and if someone comes with you, if they can remember everything, and Hippocrates would say, you can see it in the person's face, if they're grimacing or if they just say, yeah, I have belly pain. It's so fascinating and you're such a star. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with more emergency medicine. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Welcome back with Dr. Megan Healy from Temple University's Emergency Department. Megan, let's talk about stroke. Obviously, that's something you see pretty often. And I know that there's... Um, an acronym FAST. Tell us about what that means. Sure, that's supposed to help especially friends and family members to know when their loved one could be having signs of a stroke. So F is for face, looking for drooping on one side. A is for arms, if there's weakness in the arms uh, or the legs that comes on suddenly out of nowhere. S is for speech, so sudden difficulty finding words or slurred speech. And then T is to remind you time. It's time to call the ambulance if you spot those symptoms. Other things that I'll tell folks to look out for include new balance problems. If suddenly a family member is having a lot of difficulty walking, they feel like the room is spinning. Um, or visual symptoms too can be something to look out for. Blurry vision, mm -hmm. double vision that's new. And change in orientation too. If a person's even mildly confused, an elderly person, I remember this with my own dear father. My father had a very gradual but continuous um, dementia. And I noticed one day he was kind of like Grandpa Simpson in the beginning, kind of charming, like, oh, I forgot this or that. And then you could see that he gradually became more confused. But the point is one day he got up and, and um, I was gave him breakfast and he, he put... Uh, a straw into his uh, eggs and he knew the straw had to go someplace but it, and I said daddy what are you doing and, and it led to me saying oh my gosh he doesn't have a fever I took his temp but I knew he probably had maybe an infection mm -hmm. that's the other thing that the elderly don't always have a fever when they have aspirated and they have pneumonia or they have a bladder infection so a change in being able to hold a normal conversation or a change in being dis, uh, disoriented can be a sign too that goes with stroke or infection that if the elderly person doesn't mount a fever, that can be a clue. And you must see a lot of people that experience falls, either head trauma or not. Tell us about that. Sure, the most important thing for us to think about from the beginning is why did that person fall? Mm -hmm. And this is where that story I was talking about earlier really comes into play. Was it clearly a trip or a piece of furniture that caused them to, to lose, their, lose their balance? Or were they dizzy beforehand? Was something making them lightheaded? Did they have some other symptoms leading up to this? Um, 
So it's really important not to sh- just to assess whether folks have injuries, which is also a priority for us, but also to know why did you fall? Right. Because they could have had an abnormal rhythm or a, a stroke that made them fall. You're right. And senior citizens and patients with serious medical issues should wear that life alert button and don't hesitate. Use it. Push the button. The other thing, if a person's on a blood thinner, tell us about that. Sure. So being on a blood thinner puts you at higher risk for more serious internal injuries, especially when you fall, um, especially with head trauma. So very more minor head traumas can really lead to serious effects when you're on when you're on a blood thinner. So make sure that your medical team knows that you're on that blood thinner. It's really helpful to always have a list of your medications with you. We have much better electronic health records now, so we're able to find a lot of that information, but having that list is, is your backup. So carrying it Crucial. somewhere will help mm-hmm. us too. Maybe even laminate it. And hip fractures, you never stop at examining the hip. You're going to make sure that the person, when they fell, didn't hurt backbone, uh, other limbs, or dislocate anything. So that leads us to sports injuries like broken bones and tears. And, you know, if you have pain, don't assume that if you can move it, that, that that's a pass to not go and get x-rayed. But I think that really has always worried me is concussions. I, I listen to the way people talk about concussions. Well... Did they black out? No, then they're okay. Tell us about concussions. I think they're, that's so important. Sure. So head injuries, especially repeated head injuries, can be serious and they can lead to long-term effects for patients even if they don't have an initial serious injury that's found on imaging. One thing to know is that we have really good rules that help us decide who does need a CAT scan and who doesn't. Um, when they come into the emergency department after a head injury. So there's, there's great protocols for deciding that. But head injuries are not something to be messed around with, especially if after a head injury someone is having a change in their mental status, is feeling persistently dizzy, if they're vomiting, I would urge them to, to get to the emergency department. Sure, because if they have a CAT scan that's negative, listeners, put this in your in your the forefront of your own brain. If you have a family member or a friend who falls and hits their head, a negative CAT scan just means they haven't bled into their head. It doesn't mean a negative concussion. And concussion, I always think is like a soft spot on a tomato. The, the tomatoes, uh, it's easier to cause more injury down the road. That leads us to talk about motor vehicle accidents. If you're in a car accident or something, your adrenaline's running at the time because you're startled or you're angry or you're upset, what would you tell them? Sure. Um, That adrenaline that's pumping after an accident can be kind of a distractor from from something serious that could be going on. So especially for people at the extremes of age, very young patients, older patients, best to get evaluated so that we can decide if there's additional testing that you might need. Um, Mm -hmm. There can be head injuries. You can have broken bones. if there's bruising or swelling on another part of your body that might lead us to, to, more, to more testing, to more diagnostics, um, be careful and um, take the seriousness of the accident into consideration as well. Sure, and sometimes you need stitches. And, and I like that you brought in severe bruising or swelling because a lot of times that doesn't show up 
till 24 or 48 hours later. Sometimes that happens with back pain or whiplash, but stitches, if somebody has a laceration, especially if it's on the face, um, you wanna go to the emergency department because there's a time limit really after which you don't wanna sew bacteria in there. You know, uh, tell us about that. Is there a way you would tell patients? Mm -hmm. Right, sooner is definitely better after you have a laceration. It allows us to be able to clean it out and give you the best um, chance at getting a good cosmetic outcome and preventing infection. So the longer out, um, we get more worried about doing, about closing a laceration. So we have a rough rule about 12 hours. It depends a little bit on the, the part of the body and what kind of injury led to the laceration, but sooner, certainly better. We had a doctor from Recovery Centers of America uh, for two weeks, I want to talk about opioid use and Narcan. I just want to reiterate something she said, that even if a person clears after they've gotten a dose of Narcan, if the drug they've used outlives the effect of Narcan, don't say, here's your Narcan, you woke up, thank goodness, go home and sleep it off. Take them straight to the ED. Go to the emergency room because that um, drug effect, they can overdose again. It can rebound. So uh, that's important. Tell us about COVID. How has that changed what you see? I mean, we, not what you see, you see people, but what conditions you see in the emergency department? Sure. So back in the last spring into the summer, we definitely saw a decrease in the number of ER visits, but the patients we were seeing were much sicker, higher acuity um, with severe COVID. We saw the, the highest volume in the Philadelphia area of um, the really sick COVID patients that required things like the ICU. Um, now we are seeing, over the past several months, we're seeing an uptick in, in our other patients. So there's groups of patients who've had their care delayed. They now have more advanced disease or have had to have elective procedures, non-emergent procedures postponed or delayed. Um, we're not able to get in with the specialists and now are grappling with a new diagnosis that was delayed. So the volume's coming back and the patients, um, there are groups of patients who are sicker or preventing more advanced in their course. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that in, in, our, in our regular practices as well, but that people were afraid to come even to the ED or people didn't want to come to the doctor and that delay has really, um, caused issues for so many patients. And trauma, I know, Megan, you said that you were seeing fewer cases of, I guess, auto accidents if people were staying at home, but you were, you're now seeing more penetrating trauma um, cases like gunshots and knife wounds. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think that blunt trauma has stayed about stable, but penetrating trauma has definitely increased. I think so many economic factors are playing into that. Sure. Um, the unemployment, um, stressors, that you know the community's feeling, um, and we're just beginning to see how how that's all going to play out in Philadelphia and in in other places. And along with that, we're seeing such an increase in cases of depression, suicide attempts. I'm sure you see heartbreaking uh, incidents. And what I learned from listening to you, and I'm sure it's across the the board, but every patient who's admitted is tested for COVID, so you know how to protect the patient and other patients who don't have COVID. And if an emergency department patient has symptoms, obviously you're gonna test them. But the other great thing is you're offering a single dose vaccine in case they don't come back and you can't get the second vac vaccination. 
You're offering that single-dose J&J vaccine to all of your patients over 18 years of age. Tell us about that. Yes, we're really excited to roll that out uh, earlier in the summer. The ability to be able to vaccinate all of our adult patients who haven't yet had that opportunity. And we're doing the single dose because it's easiest logistically from the emergency department. Um, and it's just been a great way to increase access. Beautiful. Let's take a little break and we'll be back for our wrap up with Dr. Megan Healy. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1-888-RECOVERY. And in our final segment with Dr. Megan Healy from Temple University Emergency Department. Megan, we were talking about COVID and the changes. Um, The emergency room is an emergency department now because you have to be so skilled and so knowledgeable about so many things. We didn't even get to talk about poisons and premature labor, spider bites, all kinds of things that that come on your doorstep. A couple quick questions. If a patient is suffering from domestic abuse, should that person come to the emergency department or call the police? That's really important because we are seeing an increase in that with some of the effects of the pandemic. Um, You can always come through the emergency department and we do a lot of screening for Um, domestic violence in our EDs, we ask everyone those questions. Think of us, use us as a resource if you find yourself in that sort of situation. Um, Sometimes it's safer for someone to come to a hospital and they're more worried about calling the police. So we're here for that. It might be the only avenue they have to get out of the... And I want to rewind the tape a sec. The temple, so stellar, they had a whole building devoted to COVID. That's just incredible. And so you do see patients on that whole spectrum of illness. I had, again, a great conversation with you the other day, and I loved hearing you're just such an angel of mercy. You said some of the patients that come in aren't acute. They may be terminal, and it might be the pivot point that starts the family discussion. Tell us about that, if you would. Right. Often we're where people come on their worst day, um, and sometimes we can be the first doctor who gets the family together and has a conversation about, you know, what are the goals for this patient? Um, What would they like? What do they really need? Whether it's a different level of care, maybe it's, it's hospice, maybe it is coming into the hospital and getting them connected with all of the specialists they need, but um, finding a way to do that, that really meets the goals of that individual patient um, is something that I take very seriously uh, as an emergency physician. I can tell just by listening to you, Megan. And the emergency department is really, your goal is to get people whatever it is they need, whether it's a specialist, tell us a little bit about that. Sure, other branches of medicine think about things from the perspective of what does this person have? What's the diagnosis? I love that in the ED, it's all about what does this person need? Sometimes it is that specialist referral. Sometimes it's a nursing home or more resources at home. Sometimes it's a social worker um, to help with a component of their care or their health. Megan, if patients wanted to read a little bit more about what they should do in emergency situations or our discussion, when to go to urgent care versus straight to the emergency department, can you refer them to any good readings? Sure. Um, Some places that I always send folks are our templehealth.org website has some great resources in the patient section. Um, 
around uh, issues related to COVID, but all kinds of other medical issues that a patient might face. I also really love the Philadelphia Department of Health website has um, great patient-facing resources as well. Excellent. Dr. Megan Healy, thank you for all the fantastic work you do and all the lives that you save and make a difference. It was wonderful to have you as a guest today. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. And now for your real champion. I call this segment Two for the Road. In the Catholic tradition, women who become nuns commit to a life of service. Sister Constance Tui and Sister Jeanette Lucy, sisters of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, both entered the convent at age 18. Sister Jeanette taught in the Philadelphia area and Sister Constance in California, Peru, and Westchester. Fate brought this dynamic duo together in 1984. St. Francis de Sales at Southwest Philadelphia, a premier parochial school in the 1950s through 70s, with 2,500 baby boomers in grades 1 through 8. After the Vietnam War, many refugees from Southeast Asia enrolled in the school. Needy parishioners couldn't contribute, and the school fell into disrepair. When Sister Constance and Jeanette arrived, there was mold on the outside of the school building from broken bathroom pipes. For the first 10 years, the sisters received funding from the Archdiocese. There wasn't enough money for art, music, or gym. Their firm but gentle style attracted students from around the world, 47 countries, literally from A to Z, Angola to Zimbabwe. The sisters combined their excellent teaching methods with respect for customs of their multicultural student body. They taught their students to celebrate their classmates from many countries. And when a new student would arrive, Sister Constance would announce on the loudspeaker, we have a new little girl from Australia, let's make her feel welcome. And the entire school would clap and say, don't worry sister, we'll take good care of her. The sisters believed in their students and encouraged them to achieve. Grateful parents made sure homework was done. Sister Constance was the principal, and Sister Jeanette would find art or essay contests for students to enter. She would look at their work and often say, do it better. Soon the students were winning, winning a lot. The sisters eventually wrote a book called Do It Better. With mounting success, the sisters began a development campaign. Curriculum expanded. Graduates went on to high school and college, becoming lawyers, a deputy attorney general of New Jersey, a financial reporter at Channel 3, and then CNBC. At first, the zip code had the second highest homicide rate in the city, so they started a peace program. With an argument or brawl at recess, students were asked to sit down, talk, and settle differences. Then they avoided being suspended, and parents wouldn't be called. Then they proudly wore a badge back to class, labeled them as a peacemaker. They had students from Ethiopia and Eritrea, warring countries in Africa, but at DeSales, these children learned to work together, play together, and pray together. At one point, 61 administrators from school boards in Washington, D.C. came to learn about the peace program, which is now a national template. After 31 incredible years, the sisters are now at St. Matthew's School in Northeast Philly, another needy school where they're working their magic to raise funds and raise spirits. But here's the icing on this story. This past spring, the Border Patrol needed help with large numbers of refugees. Catholic Charities asked sisters to volunteer. Who were the first to sign up? You guessed, sisters Constance and Jeanette. The perfect choice. They had already created a model United Nations. Sister Constance has a master's degree in Spanish. They packed a car with masks, gloves, hand sanitizers, and headed to San Antonio. First day, they drove 17 hours. By day three, they arrived and went straight to work. For two weeks, they worked at a large facility with 1,000 boys ages 13 to 17. 
They were responsible for 30 boys. On day one, the boys all had their heads down at breakfast. The sisters thought they were sick or sad. They were actually praying before their meal. To pass the time, the sisters brought colored papers to make flowers and bracelets, strings and beads to make more bracelets. The goal? To keep the boys in safe housing until they could reunite with family in the U.S. or a sponsor family. On Mother's Day, the boys quietly told the sisters, You sisters are mothers to us. Sister Jeanette said, we'll never see them again, but they'll always remember that somebody in this country welcomed them and cared about them. After a short break, Thelma and Louise drove through the West Texas desert at 80 miles an hour. No problem with cruise control. On to California for two more weeks with refugee families, driving them to meet their U.S. families up to 250 miles a day. In total, they logged 14,500 miles. This is remarkable for anyone, but did I mention that Sister Jeanette will soon be 80 and Sister Constance is already 83? These saintly women talk about their work with absolute joy. I get the feeling their best years are yet to come. We salute you, Sister Constance and Sister Jeanette. You're real champions. Thanks for listening. Listen again on yourradiodoctor.net. Stay tuned for Francis Albert Sinatra. This is Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Always remember, your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.